welcome to the Flex Success Podcast, where we teach you how to be less shit. Covering all things science relating to nutrition, training, recovery, and more. Who knows, we might even sprinkle in a dick joke or two. <laughs> welcome back to another episode of the Flex Success Podcast. I'm here with my co-host, Dean McKillop. Cheers. And the almighty industry giant, Eric Helms. Welcome. Thank you for having me. And I like that. Almighty giant, I feel, <laughs> should be probably right after my name instead of anything else from now on. Put it on your business card. Yeah, maybe like forward slash number one host of Iron Culture or something like that. Not to have any competitive nature, but... <laughs> number one host. Man, I'm going to have to link this for Omar and then perhaps <laughs> just like put it on loop. I like that. <laughs> well, actually, before we get into the serious stuff, I was listening to one of uh, you guys' podcasts the other day and he was joking, of course, about his contest preparation length and how it's shortening. And he mentioned that he'd like to get on stage in um, jeans and a singlet. I don't know if he's aware, but this category actually exists in Japan. It does. We saw it. Oh, my goodness. There was a family division. And in the family division, you basically had to not train. You just showed up in a white wife beater, a pair of denim Lee jeans, and you hit poses for the fun of it. And I think they just gave out awards for everybody. Yeah, so you, the music you're competing music. and existing. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> and with the family division, obviously there's children involved, and I'm not sure if a five year old belongs on a bodybuilding stage, but it's really cute to see them be like. Ooh. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess if all they did was was show up to hang out with dad wearing a singlet and jeans, it's not the worst. But I tend to agree that five year olds probably shouldn't be on a bodybuilding stage yeah <laughs> very weird experience oh, go to a bodybuilding show in japan listeners if you have not Ooh. uh dean got asked for numerous photos because i don't know i guess he's larger than the average but well, some of the actual pros were just being ignored yeah hitatari yamagishi would get interest but like rich Gaspari kind of people just like whatever um like it was re- it was a really weird experience actually. <laughs> it was. um but for those of the people that are uh, listening that don't actually know who you are eric who like People under a rock. Yeah, those people. <laughs> Can you uh, tell everybody who you are, what you do, and why you do it? Yeah, I'd love to speak to the rock people. That's 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 the thing I can definitely do. So yeah, I think in to keep it simple, I'm really just somebody who absolutely fell in love with the Iron Game and got bit by the the, the bug per se back in '04, um, and then it became a career shift. I became a personal trainer. It became uh, my my primary way of expressing myself eventually in a deeper sense, finding meaning and it became, uh, my, my education as well. I, I, I went back to school and, and that took a long time, uh, and just really focused on that. So kind of fast forward to today. Uh, I'm a part of this crew right here, 3d muscle journey. That's, um, myself, Alberto Nunez, Jeff Alberts, Brad Lemus started at no nine kind of as a, a way to support the, uh, the lifting community, provide them evidence-based, uh, information, a more holistic approach, sustainable approach. And, um, you know, we mostly work with the drug free community and, um, not that I'm, you can't listen to me if you're, if you're not drug free, but, um, but really just kind of our whole sustainable, holistic, uh, approach to, to the sport has kind of been my, uh, my career arc, I guess you could say. And I'm kind of primarily the, the science guy. Uh, I'm also a research fellow here at the Auckland university of technology. Um, where I'm essentially working with a master's and PhD students, any postgraduate students interested in that same kind of uh, muscle nerdy stuff. Uh, and I still compete. I've done 13 uh, bodybuilding shows now, and I think 17 powerlifting meets, a couple strongman events, and three Olympic weightlifting meets. And I plan to do all more of this crazy, 
prep in, in the future. Um, yeah, I guess the podcast, some books, um, research review and PhD, a couple of masters. I, I really just need like more in my life than lifting, but I refuse to do anything else. So that's basically me. So, yeah. You are a busy man, Eric. I, I like to have a, have a rich, full life and be very stressed. That's, that's kind of how I like to do things. Does yeah. part of that rich, full life include a social life? Do you have time for fun with all of that? Yes. Yes, I do. I lift weights. No, I'm just kidding. I, uh, I do. I do. <laughs> between sets. So yeah, I, I probably the, the, the richest part of my social life is that I've been married for 14 years, uh, coming up on, uh, 15 in 2021. And, um, and yeah, so my wife, Barb is, uh, is my best friend and my closest confidant. Um, and, uh, but I, I've made a ton of great friends through, uh, all the, the, the community, you know, that's kind of the, the cool thing that blows my mind every day is that I get to maybe five, six, seven times a year travel somewhere uh, in the world and talk about bodybuilding and meet people from Singapore or Costa Rica uh, or Perth, like we were talking about, uh, and, uh, and and get to hang out with them. So I've, I've made a lot of great friends through this this crazy uh, competitive dieting thing that we love to do. Mm. And, uh, and yeah, so uh, I stay in touch with them and, and I do get a fair amount of a free time. I'm pretty good at managing my time. I think there have been times in my life where I've absolutely not been. And there are definitely time points where I get really stressed and I have to recalibrate. But um, especially now that I'm done with my PhD, which I finished in 2017, I do have a little more uh, brain and emotional and social space. So, mm. For someone that is so busy, what would your tips be for people juggling multiple things, trying to stay on track with it, with it all? Yeah, I think um, so many. Let me think of what my, my, my prime ones are. I think for one, um, it's almost a misnomer to label it time management. Um, most of the time, you're almost, I mean, there are times, and I have been there, where you're, you're physically limited by the amount of time you have to do all the things you have on your plate. But most of the time, it's really the energy you have to do them. It's more about like guarding your energy and energy management. Like you probably sat there and screwed around or didn't do anything or watched Netflix or just laid there you know, with your hair on fire for a little bit in these periods where you're the most stressed you've ever been. And that's, it's not that you are physically limited by time. It's that you weren't able to parse out where your energy should be. And one of the tricks I learned during my PhD was that when you've got a lot of different things to do uh, and they require like a different type of focus. So like during the PhD, you got to read a lot. You got to do boring ass data entry. You know, uh, you got to enter the, the, the BMI of all your participants or something like that, you know? Um, but you've also got to do really creative writing, but you've also got to, you know, clean up your EndNote, which is your reference at managing software so that you can see like, oh, that's a duplicate now that I'm doing my systematic review. You're going to have all these different tasks. And in the end, you've got to get it all done in three to four years. And that's just, it all comes from the same pot of time. But you may find that there are certain times or certain tasks is just do not give when you push. So if you're trying to write creatively and the same sentences come out awkwardly 15 times, just stop, you know, and then, you know, work on your, your, uh, your systematic review, work on some data entry, you know, send out emails to, to follow up with, with people who you, you tried to recruit and now you're going to beg them in a different way, you know, like, like all the stuff you may or may not have to do. I think they, they require different parts of your brain and different energy currencies, but they still require time. So I think, um, learning to go with the path of least resistance while still having structure is a bit of a, uh, a skill, but it was a big learning uh, experience for me that was helpful. Mm. Um, 
Second tip would be to actually cordon off time. Um, so for example, when you wake up first thing in the morning, some people like to dive right into something difficult to get the kind of the ball rolling. Other people like to grab some low hanging fruit to build momentum. Um, but either way, actually set that, that time aside. Um, and I think especially if people who listen to this podcast, a lot of people in the physique community, um, their, their career ends up involving that. Uh, and social media becomes a way they put themselves out there. And social media is quite literally designed to take your attention and to get you to get sucked into your feed. Um, and I think if you're using it as part of your business or putting yourself out there for, for promotion to hopefully open up some opportunities, you have to be extremely intentional cordon off some time. Like I have almost my entire feed muted on Instagram. Sorry, friends. And I have like eliminated basically my, my, uh, my Facebook feed at all. So I pretty much only get on there to, to post, respond to DMS or questions I get, uh, and the tags I have, and then that's it. And I'm, I'm on there for two hours and I'm pretty much gone unless I get tagged. And then that's case by case. So I think those are, those are probably the, the biggest lessons I would give as far as how to, uh, to manage your time in kind of the space we're in. Mm, that's awesome. I'm definitely in the latter group of liking to tick off easier tasks to get momentum. And sometimes starting with making the bed, but sometimes I find myself like doing tasks that aren't on my list and mm. which is fine. So then I write them on my list and cross them off. <laughs> nice. <laughs> so I can look at the list with things crossed off. Yes. Yeah, so I think that's like cheating. Is that crazy? Is that- it's <laughs> cheating. It's, it's, not, it's not crazy. It's just cheating. That's all right. It's a, a post production list check. <laughs> I'm not going to lie. I've done that before. Have you? Yeah. I do it all the time. (laughs) I do it too, to be honest. I did. I literally did it yesterday. So I think (laughs) sometimes when you just don't like, like, like my top four on my list are things that I have to sit down for and spend eight hours on. So Mm -hmm. I'm like, that's not going to change today, but I did record that 15 minute video for Andrea, you know, like, (laughs) you know, like, so yeah. Yeah find your little successes where you can. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) Now, as someone who's been in the bodybuilding world for a long time, how have you seen shifts in the industry within that time? Yeah, that's, it's interesting. So, um, I think there's definitely shifts in, in practice, there's shifts in mentality, there's shifts in culture, and there's even shifts in the interconnectedness of it. Um, so I've seen when I very first got into bodybuilding, I, it was, let's say 2005, I first started thinking about competitive bodybuilding and became aware of the Olympia. And, and I thought, Hey, that'd be cool to do one day, not the Olympia necessarily, but just (laughs) bodybuilding. Um, don't, don't, don't get me wrong. I had hope. Um, and I didn't even know that there was a significantly sized drug-free, you know, tested community. Um, and then I went to my first, uh, my first show in Georgia. It was an INBF show, the Iron Eagle. I think Rodney Hilaire hosts that show. He's a multi-time heavyweight champion at INBF from back in the mid two thousands. Um, and that was a huge eye opener. And, um, at that time it didn't get a whole lot of respect recognition or it was very seen as kind of like separate. And I'm, uh, happy to see these days that there's a lot more intermingling and cross talk between the, the enhanced uh, the tested and just kind of the bodybuilding community as a whole. Um, there were points where it was very much like, uh, you guys are the farm leagues or you guys are just lying or, you know, you, we don't take you guys seriously or, and, and also the other way too, like the very, this very self-righteous, like, um, you know, you guys are cheaters or something like that, you know, even though you're not tested or you guys are, you have it easy. Um, 
which, you know, I, I don't subscribe to those beliefs, uh, but I have seen those kind of divisions. And now I think sometimes there, there's a lot less um, malicious divisions. First of all, there's a little more unity, but when there are divisions, it's kind of like, I just don't know anything about that world. I'm not in that community. Someone might be very, very steeped in the national community or someone might just be totally following the IFBB Pro League uh, and they're not really aware of anything else, which, which yeah, is what it is. But I think that that's a positive. Um, and I've seen other shifts too. Like um, I know one we're going to talk about is the shift from having kind of these, the traditional contest prep approach of having a, you know, an X number of week diet and it has like three or four different phases where you basically remove certain food groups and it becomes progressively more, um, I'll say rigid, but also lower calorie, uh, probably higher protein, uh, probably lower fat, lower carb as you get closer and closer to comp when you're eventually, you know, just eating like white fish and veggies. Um, and that's the process to get shredded um, to then, you know, the, the, if it's your macros approach to now we're, we're starting to have that pendulum swing back and people are starting to realize that a really, really uh, I'm going to say rigid, if it fits your macros approach is also problematic. Um, and uh, so that that's been one big change. And I've also seen a pretty significant change in training where we've kind of, man, I, I don't know if it's a real change because I've seen this, this happen multiple times. This isn't new, but the, the, the step away from kind of the, the body part splits to other things, although it always kind of seems to come back to, to body part splits, which is an interesting topic. So I, I have seen training change, I've seen nutrition change, and I've seen um, the, the face of the community change a lot. Um, and I think it will continue to do so, like uh, the physique division, bikini division, apparently the, the family in Jap Japan division, that's a new one too. So, yeah. yeah, you should have heard the music that went along with this family <sighs> division. There was like these pew, 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 like these gun noises and they came out. Like, Massive lighting um, show. It was an impressive setup. It, it, was, was. it was. So, I mean, I personally see a lot of this evolution as mostly positive. Mm. Um, but what I'm also seeing with the rise of social media is that a lot of sellouts are selling junk to people that don't have the tools to realize that it's junk. Mm. And... I mean, I know that some regulation can sometimes be problematic. Uh, I'd like to see a little bit of it, though, because I hate seeing people being preyed on with, you know, yeah. waist trainers and detox teas and, or, or just even following really harmful approaches into comp prep and end up with binge eating disorders after uh, and just so many mental health problems that follow. Um, and I do think we'll, we'll talk about the default diet in a moment, but I do think that that would go a long way in kind of relieving some of those symptoms. Um, it's a so, tough one. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think social media is a, um, it's, it's, it's a double-edged sword. It probably is like a, I don't know, like a multi-headed mace or some other type of medieval weapon that cuts in all directions. Um, because it's also, it also gives a science communicator like me the opportunity to speak to a large audience and tell them helpful things. Um, it also allows someone to get uh, correction or an alternative um, uh, perception uh, quickly from someone through a comment. It also allows you to block them and everyone else who you disagree with and create a bubble. But um, it also gives someone who has no interest in helping others but just wants to make a quick buck and sell gimmicks. So it's it's all of those things. And it's to me, it feels like the same bodybuilding industry I knew 15 years ago, but just like on fast forward, you know, in all directions. So it's, it's just kind of 
like this accelerator for, for all the things that already existed. And I, I, I agree with you. It, it is, can be dizzying and worrying at, at times. Yeah. Yeah. The opportunity for exposure for different camps to get an insight into each person's sort of uh, approach is obviously far more diverse with social media. I think that's actually what's allowed um, the, the natural versus unnatural federations and groups of coaches and clients and, and coaches and all that to actually kind of intertwine. Mm-hmm. Um, I think one of the interesting things that have been in the past is probably that those in the untested federations have had the, at least the opportunity to rely on pharmacological enhancement to get them by for poor protocols. Whereas a, a natural competitor has to try and irk out as much as they possibly can through the knowledge that they learn to get the best possible physique change that they can. And because it was sometimes slightly different to the untested, the untested immediately assumed that that was different and wrong. Whereas yep. now we're starting to see a bit of an amalgamation, I think of thoughts and weirdly in a sport that is typically quite um, uh, chauvinistic, narcissistic, uh, my way is the best way. Now we're starting to get like the community of science communicators like yourself to actually bring them together, which is I think probably the biggest change that I've seen in the last five years that I've had like heavy involvement in it. Yeah. I, I think that, I think that's what I'm seeing too. And I think some of it's just, it's really hard to, to just put your fingers in your ear and go, nah, 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 these days, because like you see so many, you see so many um, ways that people are doing it different than what you have assumed is, is the only possible way. I mean, you would just wouldn't get corrected as much back in like the teen nation days. Someone would make a claim, point out an anecdote and you'd be like, Oh, I guess that's right. You know, but now like you can see some IFBB pro or some natural pro bodybuilder or some scientist or some, you know, any, any, like there's just so many examples of people doing it a different way. So I think it, it does something to prevent someone from really just like staking their claims, slamming a flag down in the full body approach and, and the keto diet and saying, no, these are the only two things, you know, combining two random things. So I, I, I tend to agree. Yeah. I really want to ask you this content, this problematic question. Um, so we, obviously there's two different camps. There's the tested and untested or natural and enhanced bodybuilders. Mm-hmm. And I actually think that's kind of gray and really difficult to define because mm-hmm. there's things that are tested for in natural or tested federations that still can be seen as not okay to take like T3, for example, or metformin, for example, where do you lie? Do, would you think that it would be, you know, within an ethical framework for a natural bodybuilder to take metformin or T3 and still claim a natty status? even though it's within line with the rules? Yeah. So I think, I think the banned substance list in the end is kind of the, the arbiter here. Right. And T3 in at least all the legitimate natural organizations I know, but this specific example is banned, like taking exogenous thyroid hormone is, is is a banned substance. And like INBF, WNBF, um, I can't speak to every single federation because there are, are literally almost a hundred. Um, but but I would say that at least in the largest organizations that, that are semi-serious about testing, you know, and, um, and have a, a well-thought-through banned substance list, some of them just copy-paste from, from WADA or from other organizations. Um, I know of organizations that, that don't really test but say they do. But, I mean, yeah. again, that, that's what happens when you have 100 organizations. You're going to have um, a different level of organization, uh, mom-and-popness, seriousness, et cetera. So, Overall, though, uh, philosophically, the way I come at it is that there are kind of two aspects. There's the, the law or, or the, the, the letter of the rules and then the spirit of the rules.
rules. And um, the letter of the rules is, is what I think every person who is competing is, is obligated to follow, right? If you don't want to just compete somewhere, those rules don't exist, you know? Um, and then the spirit of the rules is kind of the acknowledgement that uh, pharmacology is changing, you know, um, like it, it's probably easiest to point out it's because it, this, this window is getting smaller over time, I, but now it's, it's opened up again. I think SARMs are probably the uh, kind of the, the, the biggest window opening because there's something that you can get over the counter. Uh, they're not marketed as, as really what they are. They're, they're, they're taken very willy nilly in certain parts. They're not regulated. It reminds me of say like the 04 to kind of like 2010 uh, period where everyone, well, even before that, if you go into the nineties, kind of before my era where pro hormones and designer steroids were being sold on like bodybuilding.com um, and anyone could just take them and they didn't realize that they might've actually been taking, you know, oral steroids uh, or something that was, that had nothing in it. You know, that's, that's the crazy thing. It just how yeah. poorly they are made. Um, and you know, they were basically popping up and off a banned substance list as the organizations were going Oh, what, what is all this crap? And it wasn't until there were some uh, controlled substance acts that came out that kind of narrowed that window. And I think um, as a natural competitor, you, you're probably, you're probably going to best service yourself and your health and your own philosophy for why you're competing uh, by trying to follow not only the letter of the law, but also the spirit of it. Like I'm trying to do this as someone who is taking largely just nutritional supplements. And of course that's a gray area in and of itself. Um, but I think, um, I think w w you're trying to go to a place where you have roughly a, a level playing field either way, right? If you're going to the enhanced ranks, you know, that the further you go up, if you want to keep going, you're going to be dealing with uh, this other variable that the people who are serious are going to be maximizing, you know? And I think if you're in the tested ranks, you pretty much know that outside of creatine and caffeine, that's kind of it, you know, like, and, and nothing, nothing under the sun is going to be invented. That's a true nutritional supplement that is going to do much more than that anyway. So if you're spending all your time hunting down all these additional supplements that you could be taking, you're kind of just putting yourself at risk. And I'm not saying like, don't do it. Like if you want to find some crazy, you know, appetite suppressant or, or, or new, new gen pre-workout, that's great. But like, I think, I think the problem there is almost that people describe this, this, they believe supplement marketing hype. You know, um, so anyway, I, I tend to think that people need to be very familiar with the banned substance list and follow it both in terms of the, the spirit and the actual uh, written items on it. Um, and, you know, if you are actually competing in an organization where you're allowed to take T3, um, I mean, I wouldn't recommend that. I think that's probably <laughs> potentially more harmful than actually taking like a, a low dose of, of testosterone. Uh, but, but if it's allowed and you want to do that, um, then that, and then it's allowed, allowed by the organization, I guess that's fine. But I would say most organizations, the only time I have seen, I'll, I'll take a step back with a therapeutic use exemption, you can take uh, T3, T4. And that is typically in someone who actually has hypothyroid. And so mm -hmm. th that is a thing in natural organizations, but yeah. that should hopefully be actually because you have a, a metabolic issue. So. Yeah. But if you don't, you're saying that it doesn't align with the spirit of the rules. And you should think well, the spirit for yeah. yeah, and what you're trying to chase because otherwise you're trying to literally chase some form of enhancement yeah. in a bottle to make you better than what you can be, which is the yeah. whole spirit of being yeah. a natural. I'm, I don't know. I'm still so on the fence about it. I've got one foot on either side of the fence. Like I guess it's like doing a sumo deadlift in powerlifting because 
even though everyone else is doing conventional, a sumo gives you that advantage because of your, your mechanics or whatever. So I'm thinking like he's taking metformin kind of like that, like you're allowed to, but should you? Using I, I the rules to your advantage. Yeah. yeah, using the rules to your advantage. Yeah, I mean, so, so the things that are actual pharmacological drugs that require a prescription that do give an enhancement that are not on a banned substance list, I think they probably just should be on the banned substance list. And um, in most cases they, they are like, or, or they have like, like for example, the INBFW and BF has any subscription drug used for bodybuilding purposes. So for example, I could go out and I could get, you know, the blue pill if I really wanted to get like a massive pump, you know, uh, everywhere. And, and, and that would technically be, you know, uh, you know, breaking the rules. Uh, and, or, or like if, if someone wanted to get a, uh, a subscription appetite suppressant, right. And if they use that during contest prep, because it helped them make it easier, that would technically be against the rules, even though it wouldn't pop on any, on any test. So I think, I think that's, that's a useful rule. And some of those kind of broader kind of like, Hey, any hormone or any, uh, you know, prescription drug that is used to enhance performance for bodybuilding is banned. I think those, those caveats are useful. Um, now of course that only gets picked. This is a different subject. Of course, if people want to cheat, they can cheat. Like they you will always be able to cheat the tests. And I almost think that's, that's like a non-issue. I think when someone comes to me and they're like, well, you can cheat the tests," And I'm like, yeah, what's your point? And they're like, so everyone's cheating. And I'm like, now that's a pretty cynical view. Like, you know, like yeah. that, that, that's a step too far. I won't do with you that because it's possible to cheat that 99% of people will, but that's like me assuming that every person on the planet is actually selling drugs on the side just to, to, to make money or yeah, yeah, I saw an old lady fall down. Did I help her? No, I just stole her wallet. Like you, you, I could, and I could get away with it. So of course you would like when yeah. someone takes that viewpoint, like everyone's cheating. Yeah. My, my first thought is I don't trust you. <laughs> like yeah, yeah, yeah. like yeah. if that's your worldview, you know? So anyway, we've, we've said that exactly the same, like, you know, self checkouts at, at shopping centers, people are like, Oh, everybody steals from them. Like, well, you obviously do. Yeah, that's what I figured out from this conversation. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Your worldview applies to everybody. That's right, cool. exactly. Eric, do you want to talk us through like what a rigid diet is, and then you know the evolution to macro counting, kind of eating on the fly, and then into the default diet? I would love to do that more than anything else in the world. <laughs> um, so this this is an interesting thing. So the there has been a uh, a line of research kind of going on in in the the, uh, the nutrition science world and, and the psychology of eating world, um, and then there's also been what's been going on in in our community, and they're they're parallel, but they're not exactly always the same. So I'm going to start with kind of the the, the story of of our eating disorders, kind of the first there. Um, so. Like, like, like I, I positioned earlier, kind of the traditional approach to bodybuilding is you take your eight to 12 week diet, maybe 16 weeks if you want to get really lean in, in 2002 or, or the eighties. And, uh, you break it into three or four phases where eventually you're just eating like, you know, spinach and tilapia at the end. Um, and, uh, or maybe barramundi if you're, if you're from, from Australia. Um, so the, and that, you know, you'd start with having some carbon fat sources and then it would, you'd cut out carbon fat sources until you're down to nothing. And you even have limitations on which vegetables and, uh, and what, what, what protein sources you can eat. Um, and this would effectively get people, not everyone, but a fair number of people shredded, especially if they decided to do a bunch of cardio, which was the other part of that eventually doing two a days. Um, and, uh, you know, 
eight to 16 weeks also lines up nicely with the typical length of a cutting steroid cycle that people would take during this phase. Uh, and that was the traditional approach. Um, somewhere along the line, uh, there was a, a, enough people who said, hey, we should probably pay, be attention to, pay attention to, to energy balance and calories. And you started to see similar plans that would pop up where you'd start at 2,500 calories and eventually get down to like 1,800 for a male, male bodybuilder over the same course of time. And there was more variation in these meal plans. But in the end, you pretty much had, a, you, you'd see a meal plan. It would have a time and then grams, not of protein, carbs, and fat, but grams of certain types of food uh, or, or serving sizes, you know, tablespoon, cup, et cetera. And then occasionally you'd also see, and here are the calories and macros for it. And um, literally born on the bodybuilding.com forums sometime in the mid 2000s, uh, people started basically saying, you know, we, I, think, I think we could make other meal combinations to hit these targets. And it started with including certain foods. And, and then we started to see just how um, the emperor really had no clothes. We had these lists of foods that we saw as bodybuilding good and li lists of foods that we saw as bodybuilding bad. And there wasn't always a really rhyme and reason to it. I think one of the most glaring examples that I really like is that, okay, we get that brown rice has more fiber than white rice. Okay, good. So brown rice is better. That makes sense. At least it's, it's logically, internally logically consistent, sort of. I know you're shaking your head and I agree, but just, just, just to make this example. Another one, uh, we have our, uh, you know, brown bread or our, our, our wheat bread is better than white bread because it has more fiber, one's more broken down. But then somehow sweet potatoes became good, but regular white potatoes became bad. Like white potatoes are processed food. They're not. And this is just a different type of, of, of potato, right? And that was, and sometimes the level of, um, of awareness that the bodybuilding community had for which foods were considered good or bad. Like white potatoes, don't like the color. It's essentially food racism, which I'm against. <laughs> yeah. So, um, and you saw all kinds of things like this. Cheese is not okay. Why? I don't know. I mean, like, okay, but low fat cheese, that still makes your, your physique soft. But why? Don't ask me that Dexter Jackson or something like that, you know? <laughs> um, and, and eventually like, so it got stripped away and these arguments happened and it, it started to create this literal like war, uh, and an unfortunate, not literal, that's, that's inaccurate, a figurative <laughs> war. <laughs> they, were killing each other. they were actually using tanks labeled if it fits your macros. Yeah, no. So, um, yeah, so there, there became this, this online war between the, if it fits your macros camp, which was basically truly came out of, the question, can I eat this food? Well, yes, if it fits your macros. And it became an acronym. It got used so often. So then it was the if it fits your macros versus the, the clean food, dirty, you know, like, and, and the arguments were, were, were getting more and more uh, camp-based. And the problem anytime you have these two opposing sides is that anything related to your side is now dumb, and I won't do it. Um, so, and, and you straw man the other person. So it started to be like, why would you eat pop tarts? And it's like, well, who said I'm eating pop tarts? I'm just fitting my foods to macros. Okay. And then the other group was like, I'm, I, I, I eat whatever time I want and, and meal timing doesn't matter. The food you eat doesn't matter. And you start to see people with these, uh, you know, basically these accounts on Facebook at the time and eventually Instagram. And it's basically seeing like, what can I get away with? You know, I'll spend 35 minutes in the kitchen with all these fake foods. I have like defatted, you know, pro, uh, you know, uh, peanut powder I mix with water. I've got Walden Farms and I've got like uh, protein pancake mix. And 45 minutes later, I've got this thing that tastes kind of like, uh, a, a, you know, like, like pancake breakfast. And it's a 150 calories 
and I'm like, yum. And it's, you know, mostly like aluminum and, uh, and sucralose, but, and, and then like you're, you're essentially focusing all your time on food. You're eating a different thing for each meal. You have no meal structure in terms of timing or what you're eating. And you're, you're relying on your multivitamin at some, at some points and your diet's getting weirder and weirder as contest prep goes as you develop these behaviors. And anyway, um, I've, I've kind of given like the, the, the most ridiculous versions of both, but those people are out there and it, came from this camp-like struggle uh, to where everything was, was jettisoned from one or the other. Um, and I think now we're in this place where we're starting to see that the If It Fit Your Macros crowd got a little crazy, like perhaps sources of food matter. Perhaps there are, there are certain values to, to foods that are independent from just their macronutrient values, like not just micronutrients, but also things like phytonutrients or um, certain structural food components. Uh, and that there's more than that. More importantly, is that the actual satiety value of foods, how, how full foods make you, things like energy density and uh, you know, the, the, the time that it takes to, to, to consume them and how they make you feel and uh, how well they sustain energy. All these things are, are pretty useful. And we're finding that if I spend all my time thinking about food, focusing on food, cooking, and trying to make shit taste great, it actually makes my diet harder. But if I can do this in a slightly more mechanical way and just live my life and have oatmeal in the morning, that's actually a lot easier. And we don't need to be making the diet harder but we don't want to make ourselves become like super focused on the sensation and the taste of food. When in the end, the nihilism creeps in of contest prep, you're going to be starving. You're going to be food focused. You're going to hate life. And it doesn't matter if you're hating life while eating, you know, 150 calories of fake pancakes after you cooked for 30 minutes, or if you had a sweet potato or God forbid a white potato and chicken, you know? Oops. So I think that's kind of where we got to. And Along the way, if it fits your macros, got called flexible dieting, and I think that that in and of itself is probably problematic because now we're going to shift to the parallel universe of research here, where we've had this line of research in the behavior of nutrition and, and nutrition science going. Back in 1999, a group led by Westenhofer looked at restraint. So restraint is pretty much what's required to be on a diet. Um, the, the mindset of restraint, not inherently bad, but you have to actually hold yourself back in our modern environment, our obesogenic environment, if you will, to not overeat in most cases. You have to establish habits. Uh, you have to be more active. Uh, you have to look at food a little bit differently than the average Westerner who typically is slowly sliding towards obesity or at least a significant population portion of our population is. So, uh, but what Westenhofer found out is there's basically two different types of restraint that you can categorize people into uh, those who are flexible restrainers and those who are rigid restrainers. And what he did was he created a, a dichotomized scale on, on the restraint scale of a certain eating inventory questionnaire and found that certain people restrain themselves in a way uh, that would be considered rigid. And that typically is associated now that we've done more research, a black and white mentality, seeing as I'm either on or off the diet, foods are either good or bad. And it had a lot of recidivism. Uh, and in general, if you were to categorize people as rigid or flexible, you would see higher BMIs in the rigid restraint, higher incidences of uh, disordered eating, uh, body image issues, lower like happiness scores and, and just lower quality of life. And uh, in general, less diet success and more times that they regained weight. 
Um, so essentially, by going all in and focusing on it, uh, they set themselves up for failure repeatedly. Um, while flexible restrainers typically were lighter, uh, had lost a similar amount of weight but kept it off, and didn't have to the same degree the same type of uh, unhealthy relationship with their body and food, uh, and which is really interesting. And this has been, you know, research has been carried on for a long time. Uh, and now today, uh, there's even more questions to be asked. Uh, and there is the whole idea of intuitive eating. And this is really important because it helps us understand what the problem with calling, if it fits your macros, flexible restraint. And now we've seen that rigid restraint and flexible restraint actually share a lot of statistical variance. And what that means is that they can look really, really similar. And I'll give you an example of what I mean by that. If you're like, I'm a flexible dieter, I track my macros, all good. And then a grain of rice falls off the scale and you dive off the table, die hard two style, grab that rice, put it back on. And you're like, whew. Or like you lick your entire bowl clean. Or your wife's like, oh, great. You're flexible dieting this year, Eric? And I'm like, absolutely. She's like, can we go out to eat? And I'm like, sure. Can I bring my food scale? And she's like, what? Yeah. Yeah. You know, <laughs> all of these things are examples where... Um, someone might be tracking macros, but have an extremely rigid mentality. And one of the keystones of true flexible restraint uh, is that you're able to auto-regulate and make adjustments. And I've talked to some people saying like, well, yeah, like, so you burned a lot more calories today. And they're like, I think I did. I don't know. I'm just really tired and hungry. Like, well, why don't you just, you know, increase your carbs by 50? Like, because well, I'm eating 200. And they're like, okay, man, chill out. <laughs> you know? So I think um, the the methodology is not what makes something flexible. Rather, it is your attitude and your disposition towards your relationship with food that makes you either have flexible or rigid restraint. And that is something that kind of got missed. And I'd say, man, for probably the past, let's be honest, five or six years, I've been kind of like clanging that bell, like, hey, pay attention here. That We're not doing flexible restraint. Um, so that's kind of the overall story. And now with the intuitive eating side of it, we're starting to even look at ways of going, hey, if you want a healthy relationship with food, maybe you need to actually spend some time not tracking at all and just eating based upon, you know, some of our natural hunger and satiety signals, which is a difficult thing to do in bodybuilding when the, our sport is, is quite literally dependent on us going counter to those signals, at least in contest prep. So it's a, it's a relatively complex culture and, uh, and, and, and information set and, and, you know, arc of our community to follow and understand. But I think that sets the stage for where we are at to probably have me do a little bit less monologuing now. Yeah. Well, I, I was going to say the interesting thing is like, you know, before bodybuilding became mainstream, it's likely that that, that sport was called a sport for just the ease of conversation. Um, pageantry, whatever you want to call it. I'm good with that. We'll call it a sport for fun. You know, that had a, a particular personality archetype that sort of moved itself towards that style of dieting. They probably dealt with it quite well, so on and so on. And you move forward now into the 2000s where it's becoming a little bit more mainstream. More people are saying, I want to do that because I saw my friend do it. Yet there's this huge background of potential eating behaviors that have been instilled from years and years and years. And we've got a lot more people now that are probably a, a, a lot more uh, susceptible to problematic dieting issues. But the people that started it still are like, I, it's the same as that perception we were talking about before with the stealing. It's like, well, I'm fine on this style of diet. Everybody will be fine. And yeah. we're really starting to recognize now how important it is to have this sort of over overarching understanding of like the importance of this internalized discussion that people have when they eat. Yeah. So we personally, you, we've moved away from, 
we used to have the word flexible dieting on our website and whatever, and we've totally moved away from that for some of the reasons that you've discussed. Uh, but obviously we still, you know, use macros and energy balance and blah, blah, blah to teach our clients about, you know, what sort of foods will help fill them up with low energy density and keeping a calorie controlled diet and yada, yada, yada. But we really bumped into this big problem where people were grasping onto control through counting macros. Right. And they thought that that's what they needed to do forever to maintain their results, which is why uh, flex coach Shannon on behalf of flex success wrote a book called life after dieting, a guide to informed eating um, and informed eating definitely isn't the same as a default diet, um, which we'll get to, but it's similar in the sense that we're using the tools like the skill sets and the habits that we built when tracking our macros to move away from tracking and just making informed choices because we know what eating 2000 calories, let's say is what you need to maintain your results. We know what that feels like. We know what that looks like. We know that, you know, if you're leading up to a period and you're really hungry, you can just eat a little more then and then Ooh. eat a little less later, maybe swap your, uh, horrible, evil white potatoes for, the most satiating potato of all, by the way. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Just for more vegetables or something like that. Yeah. So we've really, um, I mean, not as, not for as long as you, not six years, but we've more recently tried to ring the bell of like, hey, you don't have to hold on to this macro tracking forever. We're just using it as a tool, like an educational tool. Mm. Um, well, the, the, control, the control of macros and being controlled by the counting of macros actually makes people lose control of their internalized understanding of how they feel. It's a mm. really interesting thing that I've even seen, even in the contest prep group where they are like super neurotic about numbers. Mm. 100%. Yeah. I, well, first let me just say my arm is getting tired of ringing that bell alone. So I'm really pleased to see <laughs> that these days, a lot more people are stepping up like, like Shannon, like you guys. Um, and there's just appreciate it. Yeah. There's just a lot of, there's a lot more voices now. Um, there's been creep of the, like the, the, the I'm not even mad about it. like the anti-diet culture coming in because I think that's, I mean, I don't agree with everything that comes out of the anti-diet kind of folks, but I think it's created some really good conversations. And I think when you're so engrossed in bodybuilding culture, sometimes you don't see some of the stuff that we do that is often really, really kind of productive, you know? Um, and I think one of those things is someone who sees themselves as a flexible dieter, but they've lit literally not stopped tracking macros for five or six years. And the only times they don't are when they, they actually completely lose control. Like you said, they're being controlled by macros. They lose any sense of their own awareness of what their body needs. And they get put in a situation where they can't track macros or they're just too damn hungry and they go off the deep end. Um, I've even seen some people who have to track their binges, you know, <laughs> which is crazy to me. It's like you, you wrote down the fact that you ate a whole tub of like almond butter. Like, I don't know if it matters at this point, man, you know, like, um, but okay. So, I mean, and, and I've been there, like I track my macros from uh, the start of my contest prep in 07. And then uh, except when I binge, it's basically post contest uh, through my next two seasons and all the way till before I moved to New Zealand in 2012. So that's like five years. Um, and it wasn't until I actually kind of got out of that, that I start to, to understand this stuff. And that's when I first started like, Hey, you like <laughs> voice in the wilderness, Hey, we need to be thinking about this differently. And, um, yeah, like informed eating. Uh, I think there's, so like, if, if we want to get objective about it, like, I think that the main potential issue is that when someone uses, uh, macros as a crutch rather than a tool, mm. right. 
if it supplants your idea of, of or, or your ability, let's, let's say, okay, we're in a sport. We're going to stick with that. If we are athletes, we know that good athletes are, have intense, are intensely aware of their body, right? We're aware of our body signals. We have a quote-unquote intuition, which is really just um, being able to recognize patterns and evaluate our feelings and evaluate our needs and make decisions based on those things, right? A good athlete should be able to make changes in the pocket, if you will, if I don't want to use like a, you know, a quarterback reference to gridiron. Um, but you have to adapt to the changing environment of the sport that you're dealing with. And in bodybuilding, that includes your eating and training. So if tracking macros is your only thing that guides your, uh, your, your, your diet in the off season and the in season, there is pretty clear data to show that that can make you less aware of your hunger and satiety signals. And then you're completely uh, reliant as a crutch on this uh, external cue. And I think uh, there are ways to have control and be able to manipulate and, and, you know, pull this lever when needed of changing your, your nutritional intake while still retaining some degree or as much as possible of that, uh, that intuition, that internal body awareness. So for example, um, rating your hunger and satiety, um, making adjustments to your, your portion sizes based on a numeric value, even if you like numbers for, for hunger and satiety, um, or going through just a phasic approach to how much you track. Like, uh, one thing I like to do with my competitors in the off season is get them to the point where they're literally eating based on hunger and satiety. And if there's someone who, if left their own devices, would not gain weight, then okay, we need you to be slightly full all the time, yeah. right? And then we have, the, but the backbone of that is, are the habits we establish, which I think is what we're going to talk about with the default diet. And that's kind of like, like informed eating. Like you have these uh, sports supportive nutritional habits that are the backbone of what you do nutritionally. And then the kind of the, the, the pressure valve of how much you eat is dictated by the phase of sport you're in and in different phases, hunger and satiety, but may also include tracking because there's a time and a place where that might actually be the best tool. Um, like let's say you're 12 weeks out and you're, you're, you're dealing with a very small margin of error to actually get in a deficit and not feel like total trash or not be able to train. And you don't really want to go by these hunger signals, which are a always the same eat uh, and B, really not that helpful because it's going to suck no matter what. So maybe we should track macros at this point and just kind of leave it and just be rote robotic and, and get through the sucky phase. But then when we go to the recovery phase, once we're done with our diet, that's when we start to re-implement these hunger and satiety cues to get that intuition back and learn to live a normal, normal life before we do it all over again and, and revisit our eating disorders. So, yeah. I have uh, two super interesting anecdotes that have that are going to nail the two phases that you just talked about. The first one was when I really started tracking macros and I was quite neurotic about my numbers. I had a trip to Thailand. I got sick. I unbeknowingly got salmonella poisoning. Uh, but as a, as a really good man that I am, I decided to self-diagnose my stomach issues when I returned to Australia for about three months. And um, upon going to the doctors, he said to me like, oh, you've probably just got IBS. Like, no, no, I don't, I don't think so. There's something else going on down there, you know? And uh, he's like, how's your appetite? I'm like, doesn't matter. Always full. I eat to numbers. If I'm not hungry, I eat. Like it just goes down, man. It's like, what about your body trim? I'm always hot. Like there was nothing that I was actually looking for to, to tell me that I was sick. And it came back that I had typhoid fever for, for three months. He was mortified. Wow. <laughs> Medication fixed me in two days, mind you. So idiot, go to the doctor. <laughs> so that was like a complete uh, lack of understanding of how I truly felt. I was just eating to numbers and I just did that. Uh, flip that to uh, now in this post-comp phase. So I competed in 2018 in October um, and I hadn't tracked macros since. 
and like the education of food has become better. And I've now, again, like yourself, I took away, took, stepped away from tracking macros and started to see all the issues that my clients would have when they were hyper-focused on tracking macros and trying to find our food. And I've gotten to a position now where I want to gain weight and I'm finding it extremely difficult because of the behaviors that I've set up to maintain my current healthy behaviors are like really difficult for me to overshoot my food now. I have to consciously be full if I mm -hmm. actually want to put weight on because of the behaviors that have been uh, uh, built and established on that sort of default diet, behavior diets and stuff, behavioral yeah. sort of uh, yeah, activity. So you're getting back into counting? Is that what no, I'm doing? not going to get back into counting either because I just, I, I, I'm not. I'm not that hyper-focused on gaining that much weight. To be honest, I'm kind of happy. So like, it's just a nice place to be. Maintenance is still a goal, and that's what mine is, you know. Um, mm -hmm. But it is, it is weird that, like, spending such a long time not counting and just actually adhering to how I feel has now consciously kept me where I probably would have been much lighter when I was pre-bodybuilding and running around as a kid, eating whatever I wanted, adjusting my energy intake to my energy output, and just sort of you know, doing that autonomously. Yeah, man, my end to no longer tracking macros. So I don't know if you remember Dean, but it was, we were at the airport on the way to New Zealand years ago and I left my phone at home because I'm really good at leaving sure. important things um, and not taking them with me. It's, it's a habit of mine that I thoroughly enjoy. <laughs> and this so is, this is your, your default habit. This is yeah. good. Yeah. Um, and I thought, fuck, I don't have my phone. Most people will be like, my mom can't contact me. But I was like, I can't count my macros without my phone. <laughs> what wow. am I going to do? Mm -hmm. um, and, and I'd been doing it for so long now that it was just like, you know, you wake up and you brush your teeth. Like, I just count my, that's just what I do. And Dane was like, just chill out. Like, you'll be fine. You know what to do. And like, I didn't feel like I would be fine. Um, but anyways, I came back, I think like a kilo or two lighter. <laughs> I I didn't die. Nothing you bad. Consciously undereat when you first don't track. I find that's pretty common. Mm. You know, there's this fear of overconsumption. So you're like, oh well, I just I'll just eat vegetables. And like, when have you ever just eaten just vegetables and meat? Like, <laughs> yeah. That's not a thing. <laughs> yeah, maybe just don't snack on chocolate. You know? yeah. yeah. And so just by maintaining the habits that I'd set up and using the things that I learned through macro tracking to pick my food types and also how hungry I was, what I felt like. I've more or less maintained my body weight within a kilo. Mm. Um, and I've just been doing that ever since. And it's been years and I fluctuate anywhere between 58 and 61, which is weight maintenance essentially, because we're never exactly the same. Yeah. We had a really weird shift. Even like, I remember uh, like counting macros and, you know, poo pooing the rigid diet and mm. sort of having that sort of like, ah, oh, me versus you mentality and, and whatnot. And then like I stopped tracking and I like just out dinner and someone's like, Oh, how did you track that? I'm like, I don't like, but there was, there was a stage where I was actually worried about telling clients I don't track yeah. because yes. there was this, I'm, I'm telling you to do this, therefore I should do this. Yeah. The, the distinction between like coach and education and, and actual client was, was muddied. Uh, yeah. Whereas now I'm very, mm -hmm. very about like, guess what, dude, I don't track it. And you know why? Because I don't care. Well, yeah. you don't have to. Well, I don't have to because yeah. we're making good conscious decisions other parts of the, in other parts of the day, but. Yeah. Uh, there's Dean definitely been a shift there even in that education point. Yeah, yeah, like Dean and I, we go out for tacos every Tuesday because it's Taco Tuesday. And of what course. else do you do? Like, tea. <laughs> yeah, delicious. And I don't, I, I eat my taco with a fork because I just eat the meat on the inside. And that's not because bread is bad, but I love hot chips. <laughs> like, mm -hmm. I would give anything for hot chips. So if I ate hot chips, the inside of my taco and the bread, I would be over on my calories quite significantly. So I just choose the portion of meal that I like the least. And that happens to be the tortilla. Mm. Um, or tortilla if you want to be a gringo. 
Yes, we're learning Spanish right now. We know the double L is pronounced a year. That's um, so rare to hear that pronounced properly in this part of the world. So, so well done. As someone from California, I, I appreciate that. Her, her mum is from Venezuelan, so like, yeah. I'm the gringo of this household. He's the gringo. Got it. But I've been going ham on Duolingo, so I'm starting to pick up some more stuff. You know? Crushing yeah. it. I love it. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> um, so, so my point is here that... Um, we found counting macros really helpful. I actually found counting macros to be the thing that got me out of binge eating and this really rigid framework and the terrible relationship that I had with food. But I, I'm not married to it. Once I got what I needed to out of it and I, I pulled out those benefits, I don't have to continue it anymore. Mm. Yep. So you took the good and, le- and left and left the rest, which I yep. think is, um, I think, yeah, like, what I'm always cautious to do because the way the human brain works, if it's not A, then B, it's kind of our, our, our position that we always quickly go to is I, when I, when I point out the potential issues with tracking, I always try to make sure like within the same sentence or two, like I'm not against tracking, you know, um, it can be one of the most useful tools. Like, like just exactly like Dean, if, if you were, I actually need to gain weight and I'm really struggling following this habit-based approach a useful intervention might be to start tracking. And if you're like, Oh man, I'm never getting over 2,900 calories. You'd be like, okay, very, what's the simplest next lowest hanging fruit. All right. 3000 calories is my minimum per day. Cool. And so that means like at the end of the night you have, you know, I don't know, crackers or something like whatever, you know, like you eat a little something extra. Um, the way I dealt with that, cause I had the exact same issue um, in 20, 18, I was like, all right, I have the brain space. I'm going to do this bodybuilding thing in 2019. I want to have a proper off season. Actually, it's 2017, 2017 to 2018. I did some mini cuts in 2018. And the way that my quote unquote gaining phases were, was just that like every meal where we didn't have a plan, we go out to eat and I would get the tastiest thing that also had protein. So, and I would just clear my plate because I know when I eat out, I'm much more likely just to eat what's put in front of me than when I eat at home. I'll make the right portion size for, for yeah. my hunger and I just don't gain weight. So, yeah. uh, yeah, basically I just, uh, ate at restaurants to, to, to gain weight for, uh, for it was the last season. So I found some solution. Um, that's expensive but, up at 4,000 calories. Yeah. Although Jackson, yeah, if, he, if he listen, to it, he eats out 24 seven, that dude, and he reckons he's punching 4,000 calories. I'm like, mate, do you have a sponsorship? I want to know if that guy robbed a bank. I don't know. Jackson. I'm a student as well. Like how are you eating every meal out? Jackson must have a rich benefactor who, uh, who, who purchases meals out. You know, I have no idea. I reckon he's got a sugar I'm just, mama. I'm just going to throw this out. It could be muscle worship, not confirmed nor denied. But... <laughs> Is this how rumors start? <laughs> you heard it here, folks. It's a fact. Jackson Pios, PhD student out of Western Australia. He gets the money from, from muscle worship. I can confirm yes, it. Diet breaks and muscle worship. That's I can confirm this, uh, the, this rumor I heard by, by saying, yes, I believe that rumor. So, yeah. <laughs> Well, everybody trusts Perfect. you, so it's definitely. Um, I actually have some friends who have gone through with some muscle muscle worship. He got paid. <laughs> he got paid two thousand dollars to pee on a guy. Wow! Um, yeah. yeah, I know, and I don't know if I would say no to that. Not that anyone's asked me because I'm not jacked enough. But mm. two thousand dollars to pee on someone. He didn't say no. He said yes twice. Yeah, he did it twice. Would you do it for two grand just to pee on someone? Uh, there was a time in my life I probably would have, but now I would not. No, I'm too financially secure. But there, there were times when, uh, when, when you know, the accounts were low, negative, uh, had expenses. All right, couldn't couldn't eat out. You know, so. twenty grand. Ah, twenty grand. I, I think I think I'm just good at this point. Like I, I'm I'm not money motivated enough. Uh, I I think I have a perfectly good toilet. You know. Oh, <laughs> all right. 
<laughs> However, I did, I did get asked way back in the day when I, I think after my first season, someone asked me if they could buy my posing trunks that I wore on stage. Yeah. Unwashed. And yes, unwashed. And I said, absolutely. <laughs> I'm planning on getting another one. And they were like, yeah, man, I'll give you 30 bucks. And I was like, what the, like, that's how much they cost. Like, what are you yeah. talking about? I was like, give me a three digit number and you're paying for shipping. He's like, no, nah, man. I'm like, that's, now I'm, now I'm just insulted, you know? Yeah. <laughs> I have a, if my, if my ball musk isn't worth at least a hundred dollars, then, then, then I, I protest. So. Yeah. You just don't want them bad enough. I think you have that's expensive right. musk. Well, thank you. I that guy doesn't know what he's missing out of. Musk should never be expensive. It's a terrible <laughs> Not specifically that musk, but just musk in general. Like he's like I feel, I feel like if you're going to take like, the time to contact me back in 05, that's, that's you know, like, that, that's, that must have been like a MySpace message or something like that. It was seven. Yeah. I don't remember what it was. It was over 10 years ago. Like, yeah, that's, like, a long, that's a long time. My favorite part about posing trunks is the little round circles of tan either side because mm. the guy's balls are pressing against his fake tanned legs and not in my federation there's just these like circles of white either side of the thigh and then circles of tan on the trunks mm. it's mm. wonderful to watch yeah that's when you know you're a gifted individual yeah yeah, yeah. That, that's well, that's I how you that's actually how you know if you're natural or not exactly <laughs> that's so true that is so true <laughs> it's trap traps and a doctor mess yeah exactly it's yeah. funny but for the record i think it's wonderful to watch because it's awkward and hilarious uh not because mm. i like nuts no um well, yeah i feel like that came out wrong so just just clearing no it. we'll leave that on there that'll be <laughs> that'll be the little snippet that beeps in before everybody hears what this episode is about is that liz saying she doesn't like nuts well you know what i i, I support your decision to like or not like nuts i think Thank you. i think in 2020 you can you can decide what you like no one no one should yuck your yum or yum your yuck you know Pro-choice. Yeah. Um, so with all, all of this being said, Eric, you are, uh, I believe in the last prep, you took the sort of default approach to the front end of your prep. Is that a fair? Yeah. So this, this kind of started as, um, so I hadn't been tracking since 2012. I moved to New Zealand. I did the whole strength athlete PhD thing and just set bodybuilding on the back burner until I had the brain space to do it. I was actually going to prep in 2018, but I had a, a neck injury that fortunately resolved itself. So I just pushed my, my prep back a year. Um, and in, so 2017, I just focused on gaining some weight into early 2018. And then I got up to hundred kilos, which is for, for me pretty big. Um, and I knew that was probably too heavy to start a prep or I'd be prepping for most of the year. So I did a mini cut in April and then September of 2018. And I was like, I don't really want to track for that. So I'm just not going to, you know, so I, I realized that like the way I had gotten up to hundred kilos was basically eating out all the time. And when we didn't cook a meal at home, it was like, I'm going to eat a large pizza. And I was like, I feel like this will be really easy to do a mini cut at this point. Just eat half a large pizza. <laughs> you know, how hard is that? Right. And that's exactly what I did was I just replaced meals out with like a thing of Greek yogurt, you know, and I dropped like five kilos in a month. <laughs> so it was really easy. Like this, just flew off me and I did that twice and I actually got probably leaner than I wanted to in September. Um, I got down to like 88 and my, I actually started contest prep in December at around 89 and a half. Um, so I think I had, I just had a lot of travel. I was probably being a, like replacing a large pizza with, with uh, Greek yogurt. It's actually a large cut in calories. I was Ooh. under eating probably too much, but I felt great. Performance was fine. I was sleeping great. And I looked up and I had like quad separation. I was like, I, this is, this is taking it too far. So anyway, I just went back to like eating normally and I gained about a kilo and a half back. I think I actually even hit an 87 
um, in that uh, in that second mini cut. But I was really encouraged by how easy it was and um, how smoothly it flowed. And so when I started my prep in, in mid-December, um, after kind of, you know, just going to, into a maintenance phase and making sure I was eating as much as I could without putting on too much weight, but still doing it relatively intuitively in uh, October, November, and, and early December, I started the prep and I was like, I just don't feel like I need to track. And I didn't. And I just kind of created uh, what I eventually articulated as my, my default diet, which is essentially the, the, uh, the, the habitual construct of what I do every day, um, which has changed a little bit now. But at the time, it was I'd get up every morning and I'd make like, I'd stuff a bunch of greens, uh, a piece of fruit or two, and uh, put some whey and some ice in a blender and I'd have a shake. And then for, for lunch, I would have, you know, either Greek yogurt or tuna and fruit or vegetable. And then same thing kind of deal for dinner. And then before bed, I'd have another serving of protein. And the portion sizes I was naturally selecting and the way I was structuring my diet, this was putting me around like uh, 1,800-ish calories, which I don't have an extremely high energy expenditure. I'm most of the time sitting on my butt, you know, either talking to people or writing things like this. And um, that was an appropriate intake for a guy around 90 kilos who was relatively sedentary. And then I would just simply have uh, two days per week uh, where I would eat something on top of that, you know, and that was my quote unquote refeed. So I had a couple days of the week where I was in the mid 2000s and then the other days of the week were 1800 and I just steadily dropped and I was very comfortable doing it that way until March. And at this point I was probably in like, I'd say like, like men's physique stage condition, you know, and I got there with just doing it this way. And it was at that that point. Is that a jab? Are we going to say that's a jab? That might be a jab. I mean, no, so I was in good condition, right? <laughs> yeah. I looked great, you know? <laughs> so did I backpedal well enough on that, I think? Yeah, you, so, yeah, you did good. Sweet. Um, but I, I, my, I, my point was that I got into pretty damn good condition before I felt the need to start tracking. And honestly, the only reason I started tracking was because I was, I'm like, I was starting to feel the pressure. You know, I was competing in April and it was early March um, and I wanted to do really well. It's the first time I've been on stage and eight years. Um, and you know, I, like as much as I really just try to do this for me and for the right reasons in the end, I do like, I'm a representative of 3d muscle journey. I'm, I'm Eric Collins. Like if, if I don't get on stage to try to glutes, does that mean science doesn't work? You know, like I, all this bullshit gets in my head. And, um, and I was like, you know what? I just feel a little, instead of having this internal dialogue, why don't I just track? So I feel a little more confident. Like I know that works. I've, I've, this is, I've been shredded before, you know? Um, so so anyway, I also got Berto on board to keep me sane and uh, Alberto Nunez, my, my colleague. And, um, and so, yeah, I started tracking. He started, you know, basically becoming my auto-regulation and giving me kind of the constraints to when I could change my nutrition. And he still gave me, he gave me a lot of rope. Like, hey, like if you're feeling this way, this way, feel free to eat a little more, a little less, et cetera. Um, and there were times when I was really grateful for that because I did lose some of that uh, calibration. Like um, I was actually in Gold Coast. Uh, there for the ISSN uh, annual well, first annual um, sports nutrition Australia conference. And I had had my, my two refeeds, but I'd also been walking around gold coast and probably clocking over 10 K steps per day, hanging out with Jackson, you know, when he wasn't doing uh, muscle, muscle worship. And, uh, <laughs> and so I sent my, my, my visual update to, to Alberto. And this is actually in February. So I brought Alberto on a little earlier than I, than I remembered. Um, and he was like, 
so did you have your refeed this week? And I was like, yeah, man. And he was like, doesn't look like it. And I was like, are you calling me flat? You know? And, uh, and after I, I, I got past the indignity of him saying I look small, um, he just basically gave me a third refeed. So I, I found that if anything, my intuition was leaning me to probably cut a little too hard. Um, and, um, so that was good. So like, and so things like that was, was basically the flavor of it. And then in, in March, I really started like every day I'm, I'm tracking this stuff on Fit Genie. And uh, I'd have specific numbers from, from Birdo. And that was kind of carried through all the way to the end of prep. But it was, man, it was startlingly easy to get to that first show in April where roughly two thirds of it was, was, was untracked. And then uh, the last third was tracked. And I mean, I got on stage in April. I wasn't in peak condition. But I mean, I was, I had some glute dense, but I would say I, um, I didn't hit peak condition till June. Uh, and man, I, but it was leaner than I was in my first season. It was about as lean as I was in 2011, Ooh. not as lean as I was in 2009, but in April I was, I was kind of like looking around and I wanted to be like, did I just have an easy bodybuilding prep? Did I do this wrong? You know, um, you didn't suffer to win. Exactly. Um, how, maybe, how close did you get from a body a body uh, weight point of view from like say default to track to then being on stage? Yeah, so the lightest I ever touched down on, like gnarly depleted, sometime in I think uh, July was seventy nine point five, and the lightest I saw for uh, the April show was like eighty one point five ish. So it's basically like a two kilo difference, um, which when when I look at the pictures, I think must have been almost completely body fat. Um, so yeah, like I got to it made me realize just how much people put additional difficulty on their bodybuilding prep diet. Like it, it did get hard for me. Like I, I do truly believe that for almost everybody to get like ridiculously peeled, no matter what it is going to suck. And even once, well, this is something we could talk about if you want, but I basically reverse dieted all the way from June to August mm. without gaining weight, you know, like the true most conservative form of the reverse diet. And I still felt pretty crappy even though I had gotten myself up to eating in the high 2000 calories and maintaining like 80 kilos. Um, but it didn't alleviate the, the symptoms of just being shredded, you know? Yeah. However, when I was just a couple kilos over shredded, I felt fine. You know, like I feel like if I had just done that April show and then come out of it, that I could have walked around like 85, 86 kilos just with my habits, which is crazy. Cause that, that would be like, I'm ready for a photo shoot anytime. Uh, which I just did not think was possible for me. Um, I don't think it'd be good for me as a bodybuilder or as an athlete. Like that's probably still too lean. Um, I wouldn't be gaining by any means strength or, or, or muscle. Um, but the fact that I, I could do that uh, was kind of mind blowing to me. And it made me realize that back in the day, the times where I struggled way earlier than that was probably more due to my methods and my mentality rather than due to anything physiological. So, yeah, I think as you, the, the focus shifts, it certainly makes it a lot easier when it yes. comes to managing hunger and satiety and all the rest of it. And my experience with myself and also with clients has been that there's absolutely a body fat tipping point where it just shifts and changes the game. And I'm kind of at that point with a lot of clients and that sort of, you know, six day week out range, you're kind of like, now's your moment. A lot of people can get here. Not many people can surpass it because it's going to be a daily struggle. Energy's going to suck. Like I remember uh, going for a walk with Liz, maybe like four weeks out, even on a refeed day and being like, I think I might just call a helicopter to come pick me up. Like yes. we're inside this little sort of uh, sanctuary of walking at Burley and I don't know if I'm going to make it out. Like I- I'm, I'm done. Like this is, this hurts, man. I was, I was trying to talk to him and perk him up and like, 
it just wasn't working. So I was like, that's cool, babe. We'll just walk in silence. I had enough energy to talk to myself in my own brain and that was a bad idea. Yeah. Yeah. You yeah. I think that the, your circle are all a little bit too intelligent to say this to you, Eric, but um, it's interesting when people that are stage ready have things said to them like, wow, you look fantastic. You must feel great. <laughs> um, the better you look, the worse you feel is generally the rule. Yeah, it was, it was, um, it's funny. Like it's, uh, when you go through the post prep period, um, when you, if you've been shredded for a while, you have like every two weeks, you're like, Oh, this is normal. And then you're like, Oh no, no. Oh, this is normal. Like you come <laughs> out of that, that, that kind of feeling like crap phase, but it was, um, it was interesting. I felt really, really good. And I remember saying things like if I'd had two refeed days in a row, which I often did, or sometimes three at a certain stage, I would, I, I, I'd mention to people or my wife, we'd be on our walk. And I wasn't quite shredded yet, but I'd be like, you know what, if you drop my brain, you know, uh, from, from the off season into my body right now, I wouldn't know I was dieting. Yeah. Um, but then let's talk about July, even after a full six weeks of eating up and getting in back to the highest calories, even I had back when I made that little weird comparison, but now I'm really, really diced. And if I missed a meal on a refeed, I would all of a sudden be like, Ooh, you know, <laughs> and just feel like, yeah, just, just like this feeling like death. And it was, it made me realize like, I'm okay right now, but, but man, I'm, I'm just literally like, I'm on a tightrope of, 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 of non-lethargy and, uh, and yeah, like libido sleep, certain things just did not get fixed, even though I was eating the most I had during the whole prep. I did get to a point when I was diced, like you said, that body fat tipping point. Um, and where I was eating, yeah, 2,800 calories at, at the end, the end of July, moving into my last show I did here in New Zealand was August 10th. And like every morning I would just wake up looking peaked and shredded, looking fantastic, but I just did not feel a hundred percent. Yeah. Um, and there was, there was just, it didn't matter, you know, it yeah, didn't I'm matter what I did. Quite literally. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, was there a reason why you chose to go for the slower reverse? So, yeah. So the interesting thing, well, basically is I was still competing. So I did a show in April and then I did a show in the first weekend in July, the third week in July, and then the second weekend in August. So I did the show in April and I was literally only two kilos off, like I said. So I had a little bit of a diet break. I went to uh, Italy with my wife and did a seminar there and didn't track and didn't gain a single kilo, just to give you an idea of how, how it was not jacked up from the diet at that point, which is pretty cool. And then I took... Uh, you know, I started pushing in May and then I really struck, quote unquote, I did a digging phase in June to get into peak condition. And that was, I want to say the first or second weekend in June, I got to like, like there's really nothing left for you to lose kind of, kind of thing or close enough to it that it didn't matter. And we decided to start putting the calories the other way. And I was like on an average, including refeeds of 1600 calories a day in, I want to say uh, that, that, that dig, that digging phase. And then every week we just started bumping it up. The first thing I did was we immediately jumped up to like 1900, which Berto and I felt confident would not be a surplus at that point, even with all the metabolic adaptation. And then we went up to like, I think 2100 after that, the next week, and then a hundred, a hundred. And then I did my next show. So I walked into that show on 22, 2300 calories a day. And we did that again for the next two. And that's with a peak week as well. And then, so I was at 2500 calories for that, that July show. And then I just kept going and, we were trying to see what could I maintain on going into that August show. And it was around 2,800 calories at the very end. Um, and my stage weight was the same. I looked great. I looked probably my best in July. I think my body just started to complain by the time August came around. Like 
I don't want you to be shredded anymore. And I started just to have like weird responses to foods, a little weird, more digestive issues and uh, unpredictable peak. But, um, but yeah, I didn't necessarily choose to do a reverse diet out of the season. It was more, I'm eating up into shows, yeah, yeah, but yeah. the effect was that I got to experience a, what the reverse diet is supposed to be like the marketing for reverse diet is eat all the food, keep your shreds. And the way they justify it is they'll show you the before and after someone lean, someone still lean and Ooh. higher macros, right? That that's, that's the pitch. Eat all the food you want and it's quantified by macros and still be shredded. And the, the lie is that you'll feel good on those higher macros, you know, but even the, though you're shredded. The other lie is also that you're not actually back in a surplus. So of course you should look that way. Mm. Exactly. Exactly. Like, and I you're think seeing, uh, you're coming out of a deficit and now you're going to not a suppressed maintenance, but a, uh, you know, an upregulated slightly maintenance at best. Yeah. And then even as that, that continuum rises, you're like a 50 calorie surplus, like guess how much fat you're going to gain on 50 calories. And then it's like a 75 calorie surplus. So like your exposure to the surplus is so elongated the body yep. fat gain is just also so elongated. And then all of a sudden well, it's like, meat goes up accordingly. well, that's the other yeah. thing too. Your activity goes up subconsciously because you're eating more food. And, and then there's this moment I even say to people too, like uh, I put food back in pretty quickly post comp and I'm like, do not get excited by how you look in the first month because it's a misrepresentation. It will catch up. <laughs> you know, the, yeah. the ability to restore fuel is far faster than fat as a fuel as opposed to carbohydrates. Mm -hmm. And if I continue to rise your calories, there's going to be a moment where you wake up in the morning and go, Oh, what happened? Where did all that come from? It's mm. a really, really weird. Again, it's like a body fat tipping point almost. Yeah. Um, so I'm, I, I quite like the, the speedy. But yeah, I, I misheard you. I thought you meant you did a slow reverse post final comp, not into no, the actual that, comp. That's cool. So yeah, it, it, it was cool because I was able to really just kind of show people. And I actually did this for, for mass. I talked about post dieting strategies. I was like, look here. Like here's, I did the best iteration of the reverse diet. And guess what? I slept four hours, woke up. And I had zero libido. Like that did not change. And my strength was actually starting to, to come down at the end of comp when I maintained it pretty well previously. So don't believe the hype. Like I look great, but that's about it. And I didn't even want to look great anymore. I was tired of it. Like I'm annoyed at chairs that don't have cushions at this point. You know, like <laughs> when I sit with them, like, you yeah. know. Please tell me you didn't get a pair of those feel shoes just to make sure that your, your heel, heels did not hit the ground. You know, the nice real thick sole. I do know those. Fortunately, I'm an Air Max man, so I kind of already had those. They've got the slight heel. Um, that's Dean mainly so always, I can do. Dean always complains about like hard seats because he's got no fat on his bum. So that's extra hilarious for us. Yeah. <laughs> he said one day he was in the shower and he was just washing himself, and all of a sudden he's like, "Oh, that nearly was." Yeah. Usually, there's some fat stopping his hand from entering himself, but there was just no fat. There anymore. was there was definitely no entry. Are you sure? There was. There was <laughs> Well, the speed of clench was very fast. Good, good, I'm glad. Uh, but it was like that. It was like, holy shit, I didn't realize how much fat you have between your bum cheeks. <laughs> yeah, so this is something that we call cat butt. Um, so when you see, it works for dogs too, depending on what animal you love. But when you see a quadruped, when they walk away from you, you can see into them. You know, that's just right there. Um, and when you have achieved a certain level of leanness, you can also, no matter how hard you clench, depending on the shape of your glutes, if, or just a slight in inclination, you can also achieve cat butt. And that's when you know you've really made it. I've not heard of cat butt before. I like it. Well, yeah. Liz and I. Liz something, and I it's something I coined. So, yeah. <laughs> Liz, was, Liz was lucky enough to roll tan me my first uh, competition. Oh, man. And we were pretty we were pretty fresh. So, like, it was a you know, good entry into our Dean relationship. Dean had a cock sock on for those watching on YouTube. Enjoy oh, yeah, yeah. 
Dean was like this. And but I'm but I wasn't even that bent over. And I was like, you can't see everything, right? She's like, no, no, split. I can definitely see your ass. And I was like, oh. <laughs> well, like, I'm kind of like this, you know, like, good boy. <laughs> good to meet you. Yeah, I'm afraid of you. Yeah. Look, yeah. there's yeah. just some things that a girlfriend at the time Ooh. should not see, especially in the light of day. Um, it's too I early. still somehow married you, um, but it, it haunts me at nighttime. I wore a pretty cock sock. <laughs> well, if you guys can can weather that in your relationship, I'm I'm very confident you guys will make it for the long haul. Anyone that can weather a prep or two, I mean, your lovely wife has weathered. Do you say twelve and seventeen powerlifting? Was it 13, 13 shows? Yeah. Oh so she's uh, that relationship she's, is locked down, man. Sweetheart, I'm not hanging around thirteen shows. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No. <laughs> what were some of the biggest uh, things? Like, so would you say that the ease mentally? Uh, like the mental fatigue was probably the easiest thing from this default approach as opposed to tracking from 20 odd weeks out. Yes. I think so. Like what, what really made me realize is, is that the um, it all gets pulled from the same like will willpower pool, if you will, like, you know, and you like how much rebellion you have during your, your, your recovery phase, like how often you're like, damn it, I deserve some donuts. Mm-hmm. I think is inverse to how much trauma you sustain during the prep. It's going to happen no matter what. It should happen. Like you need to gain body fat. But I got up to, at the heaviest I got post-comp was 96, which as you recall, like the peak of my bulk was 100. So it was fine. Like I didn't look bad or anything like that. It took some adjustment because I was, you know, I was used to not lean being anything over 81, you know, kind of thing. Ooh. But um, but yeah, I like it. No one ever looked at me and went, whoa, Eric, like you've really had a rough transition from the stage. Like they're like, oh, face. you you've gained you no know, not to my face no exactly at least to, so as far as i know i'm I'm good but um but anyway like so that was interesting and it made me realize that the this is the leanest i've ever been and it was i would say my easiest contest prep thus far um it wasn't easy but which which is an important distinction the the ability to get right to the the precipice of where that body fat tipping point was almost effortlessly or comparatively effortlessly gave me the ability to go, right, I'm going to be shredded and I'm going to eat nothing. And I'm going to do that for a couple months. Uh, and I have the willpower to do it. But I mean, in previous years, like 07, I didn't even get as lean as I got from my April show when I got on stage for my very first season. And it took everything out of me. And I put on 22 kilos in two months after that show was oh, over. Wow. You know, I had a complete blowout. And that was when I had an old, like my wife sat me down with an ultimatum. I'm like, hey, if you're going to keep doing the bodybuilding, this way, I'm not going to stick around. And that that's kind of what was one of the those um, those turning point moments that eventually led to, you know, 3D muscle journey being what it is and us trying to find healthier approaches. Um, and 09 was way better. But 09 was basically just I learned how far I could push myself in 07. I removed some of the dumbest things I did. And then I just leveraged my willpower. And I just ground myself into dust to get, get striated glutes and, you know, might have had a hamstring tear in the process, but um, <laughs> but we got there, right? Yeah. And then 2011 is when I learned more, and I got I, I would have gotten leaner, but I just didn't need to. I my goal was to to win a show. I won a show, and I was like, I'm done, you know. Like so, there was clearly some lingering from fatigue from previous seasons there, even in 2011. So now I had like eight years removed, and I got to the point where um, about as lean as I was in 2011 when I when I won a show, which is, is like I said, pretty damn lean, but not crazy shredded. And I had not incurred significant fatigue. And I was like, wow, I've got a lot left here. So it allowed me, I think this, uh, this, this default habit based approach of not tracking 
this uh, informed kind of eating, like awareness of where I needed to be and keeping myself an appropriate hunger level, appropriate energy level, et cetera, uh, maintaining performance and just kind of looking at all this biofeedback of, all right, where should I be for how lean I'm getting at this stage of prep? And, you know, just modifying my behaviors in that way. That got me so that when it came time to need to really knuckle down and, and really sustain some suffering to get shredded to where I was ready for it. And I was, I was okay with that. And, um, and then, you know, that was a really hard three week push that I did. And that was coming out of me being semi fatigued, but not too bad in May. So there's like this end of May, early June period where the, where the prep really sucked. You know, it was, it was, but I timed it. Like I didn't have work meetings. I didn't have any obligations. I had cordoned off my life and I just killed myself. And then the food just came up the whole time. So like, man, it was, it was not that bad as far as prep. It did, it did, it did get very hard and it never got easy as I'd, I'd wanted it to after the food coming up. But I think the, the habit based approach allowed me to have the, uh, you know, petrol in the tank to push those final uh, bits to get into great condition and, and really be at my best on stage. Love it. Yeah. Who would you say, um, would not be an appropriate group of people to engage in a default diet in the front end of a prep? That's a great question. And I think probably most first or even second time competitors. Mm. Um, I think if, if we're going to use biofeedback to inform our behaviors, you have to be able to know what you should be experiencing, right? So if you haven't been shredded before, you don't know what that feels like. Mm. Um, you don't know like how easy should be the first month of prep. Like I think experienced competitors know that if you're doing it right, the first month of prep is just like you say no to pizza, you know, like you're ma- even if you're tracking macros, you can fit so much in that it doesn't look that much different. Um, and it's, it's not hard. It's mostly just you wishing you were a little leaner and that the process would go faster. Right. Yeah, it's just um, an annoying phase of, rest- of yeah. like some restraint. You're like, God damn it, man. But for yeah. no, no visual gain. You're it like, doesn't ah. look like it's paying off yet. It's skinny. Exactly. Fat it's the worst face. Yeah, all. exactly. Going for, for a dude going from like 16 to 13% body fat, you just look smaller. You know, yeah. it's not great. Yeah. yeah. So, um, yeah. So like, I think if, if you haven't been all the way to the stage and gotten pretty damn lean before, uh, to know what that can feel like, shouldn't feel like when it was like at its worst, when it was like at its best, you probably don't have the experience to be able to have confidence in that approach or to know when, like, like if you're early in that first month, like we're talking about, it's just annoying and you're dying, like eat more. Like, but if you don't know that, then how can you do that? Yeah. Um, and I think another thing is some of the, the personality traits, like uh, if you're very high in neuroticism, I think that's, I, I do believe that's modifiable to some degree, but some people are just more stressed by not tracking. And mm-hmm. I think for them, I wouldn't give them a fully like intuitive approach. I would say, all right, let's create some constraints that allow you to leverage some biofeedback. Like we'll give you a carbohydrate and a fat range, you know, and here are the if then statements that you can use to establish when. So they still have rules to kind of fall back on. It's a little less qualitative. Um, and I think that that's probably the, that might be the best they can do if they're really high in neuroticism. Um, but if someone can dial that down, then this, this might be a viable approach. The way I like to ask people, like, let's, let's find out who, how neurotic everyone is, is I normally ask everyone, okay, who tracks macros in a room? Like, I've done this at a few conferences, and it really pisses people off. So I enjoy it. Everyone raises their hand, right? Like, okay, so who does this? You, you hit certain targets, and then at the end of the or you kind of free, you freestyle a little bit for the most of the day. And then for your last meal, you see what you have left, and you just hit that. And everyone goes, yeah, I do that. That's, that's, the, 
the first hack. And I'm like, great, you guys are doing it. You're doing great. You're killing it. Now, who, after you eat that meal, then goes back and tracks that meal? And then everyone, most people keep their hands up. And, I'm like, and I go, why? And everyone's like, well, well, it's just so that I have the data to look back on. I'm like, no, it's because you needed to write it down. Like, you know what your calories were for that phase. It's like, give me a break. You're, yeah. you're neurotic, you know. <laughs> and then I argue with them for 20 minutes about their eating disorders. So that's, that's kind of the, uh, that, that, that's like one little gauge. Like if you really enjoy tracking things, if you feel satisfied, if you feel incomplete, if you don't write those things down, if unknowns give you this kind of an impending sense of stress, like you can mitigate that as much as you want. But I think to some degree, some people, that's just something you know about yourself and that, you know, you manage it. So not, I don't think everyone can take probably as, as intuitive approach as maybe I did, I tend to be someone who is a little more big picture thinking. Um, not that I'm not neurotic and crazy. I mean, I, I wouldn't have done 13 shows, but, um, but I think on the spectrum, at least in the bodybuilding community, I'm a little more freewheeling than most. Um, so I think that's, that's, that's something to consider is your personality type and then your experience. Because yeah. if you've, if you can look at food and you roughly know the macros and you track for a while, and you know, the calories and you're well-informed, you don't have any, um, orthorexic beliefs about food and you've also been shredded and you're reasonably relaxed compared to, to the most neurotic bodybuilding competitors, it's worth giving it a shot. Mm. Yeah, I'm super glad that that distinction got made because as I was listening, I'm like, you know, we're talking about a history of yourself of competing from 2004. I think you said it was the start of 2005. 2007. Sorry. I first got into bodybuilding yeah. in 2005 in my first season in 07. Yeah. And then, so we're talking like in 07 to 2019 was when you did this approach. So like yeah. we're talking 12 years of education, time spent in the yeah. game. Um, I, I said to Liz the other day, I think I could probably default diet to use your term uh, till probably around about six to eight weeks out. I reckon I could um, mm-hmm. just because of behaviors. Uh, but then the flip was like, I hope the clients aren't listening and people are listening saying, oh, I can do what Eric did because my experience has been exactly that, you know, like one, uh, you know, first or second year or even third year competitors is most of them have followed rigidity complete rigidity in either diet type and foods or maybe inflexible. And they have no idea how to actually handle it yeah. outside of that. Yeah. Um, I don't know if I coined my term or if I semi stole it and blended a couple together, What's but that? my approach with uh, prep currently with most of my clients is what I tell them is rigid, flexible. So they, they, yeah. I send them macros, they write a diet that they think they'll enjoy. They have complete input into that based around parameters of say like fruits and vegetables and all the rest of it, but they have the flexibility to change should they wish to, you know, like you have options. Like, what's rigid yeah. about that? So the rigid is that, like, the diet is written. They kind of follow the diet. Right. But if they want to change, they can. And what I find is the people that have like a really good uh, internal compass around how they feel, they're kind of just like, man, I'm happy just eating this basic food that's pretty good. It serves me well. I'm not trying to like fit pancakes. I'm not trying to do the following. But then one day of the week, they're like, hey, man, I had steak tonight because it just felt like steak. And I'm like, cool, dude. And then the end of it is like. I, I have a, a lot of feedback at the end when I talk to people about, hey, when we go into this next phase, post-comp, this recovery phase, the people that are like, I can't wait to smash donuts or I can't wait to go for the very typical hyper-processed, uh, they, they require no time for preparation. Those people are in trouble and they haven't really established that, that, that appropriate thought between you know, sort of brain and gut. Mm. Whereas the other ones are just like, I just want to eat more food and go out with my friends. I'm like, ah, oh, this is- I just be, don't want to feel bad. Like, you're you're going to do yeah. well. Yeah. Yes. I just don't want to hurt when I sit down. Yeah. I don't want to be lethargic. Yeah. yeah the two, two, two very different things. Yeah. I think, um, what you, and, uh, you like the way I started coining that was, um, structured flexibility. Cause Ooh. I think, you know, like rigid and flexible, like I think they feel like they're opposing concepts, but structure 
just means that um, you know the constraints, but that you can have constraints that change based on if then statements. So I like to kind of coin that as like structured flexibility. And this goes back to something that you brought up earlier, and I experienced the same thing, uh, Dean, was that um, you were afraid to talk about doing this at first because you didn't know how your clients would take it. And I think I was the same um, because I didn't actually know how to coach it. Like I knew how to do it on my own, but when I created a spreadsheet and when I gave someone guidelines, I was like, you know, like, what do I type into this call? <laughs> like, I don't actually know how to, um, I hadn't yet created a framework for what that coaching looked like. Uh, and then that's when I started to do the things like, all right, we're going to go from macros to protein and calories, uh, to just body weight and protein or, or whatever thing we track for you that, that you need to, to manage to get right. Maybe just body weight, uh, and just using satiety to then less frequent body weight. Uh, and then, you know, so basically like what's the minimum amount of biofeedback and then, Oh, can we, can we just do, you know, values for, for hunger and satiety. So I actually had to build a new coaching skill set to be able to teach these skills because the only way I knew how to coach people was to give them macros and adjust them, you know, and I could speak philosophically about the, uh, healthier form of restraint and what true flexible restraint was and when they could, you know, change their macros or which foods they could eat, or maybe I have some structure, but I wasn't able to impart the same things I was doing with myself in a coaching relationship for a while. And I think that took, um, it's a different skill set, you know, um, which I think is uh, probably why there was some lag time before I was comfortable speaking about this. And, you know, that it's funny. There was, a uh, one thing I told Berto in April was that I'm not going to tell anybody this because I peaked for my April show not tracking. Like I did a peak week purely eating out. Like I, we went and I, like I just chose stuff like sushi and stuff like that and eyeballed it and had a pretty good peak for April. And I was like, this one, I'm not going to tell anybody. Like, I don't think people should be doing this, you know? Like, <laughs> um, but eventually I have talked about it clearly as I'm doing now, but it was, it's just, it's interesting because we, we, it just goes to show you how much we value um, precision and quantifying things and being analytical in bodybuilding. And I think for good reason, don't get me wrong. But one thing I started to realize is that there aren't people who are going to hear me say this and be like, you know what, I'm just going to wing a peak week. Like that's not the mentality of people in that position. You know, I think a lot of people, they just hear it and they, they either go, man, I don't know how you do that. I'm not ready. Or I'm so, I'm so abhorrent to that idea that I think it's suboptimal, you know? And um, so I've been more confident vocalizing it, discussing it, and trying to give the, the full spectrum pros and cons and who it is and isn't appropriate for. Yeah. I think it is very much an advanced technique, you know, uh, taking this approach. Um, and may, maybe someone who came from a, like, it's, it's theoretically possible that someone could start from a fully intuitive approach and only learn that and not have a, an awareness of, you know, like macros and all that stuff. But I, to me, I, and I guess there's examples of that. Like I think Sean Ray kind of took that approach. You ever listen to him talk, but it's, yeah. it's certainly something that's difficult for me to conceive of what that would really look like. And I do think it would be better to have some of that quantitative knowledge uh, to, to, yeah. to then jump from and to take My old boss was a, a big fan of Sean Ray and he followed his protocols for food and he followed uh, Dorian's for training. And interesting. Um, interestingly, yes, he doesn't really know like what carbs are in for a rice. But he knows rice was a carb and he knew that, you know, mm-hmm. chicken was a protein. And he, his whole prep diet was essentially just like, I ate chicken, I ate rice and I had pineapple. He was a very successful bodybuilder yeah. too. Yeah. And, um, and then it was like, I did a bit of cardio. I didn't get leaner. I'll just half my rice. 
Like that's a, that's a calorie. I'll just do more And cardio. he just didn't take out the proteins and he just eventually took down the carbs. So like, even though they don't know, like they know that those are the three sources of at least those types of macros and they start to just regulate it out and make sense. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think with that, like you, you can get lucky um, or like from what I can currently see in the typical like guru-esque IFBB coaching freaking genre that is there now is that they basically just crash diet them and then say eat sushi because like you can't really make a 250 pound dude get fat if he eats a lot of sushi when he's been eating 2000 calories for six weeks like it's such an easy way to make them do it Mm. Uh, people think it's magical because sushi makes people massive but of course it does you'll starve for six weeks like (laughs) use a lot of soy sauce too yeah (laughs) there might be some misaligned incentives here though for coaches to poo-poo this idea um, because man, do I want to drop names? I don't know no. because people, um, like to have really complicated concepts like you possibly you mere mortal could not understand, pay me $300 a week. And I'll teach you these really complex things where we consider like how much sunlight has hit each broccoli stem and you know, only mm. then can you get the best results. Mm. But what we're talking about here is something entirely different. Like you learn and you kind of gauge how you're feeling and like you can't it's not sexy you can't sell that for $300 a week to a client like so I think that there would be some incentives out there from coaches to try and hold people back from getting to this stage 100% mm. well let's not call them coaches then yeah because okay. cool. I because I think the it took me an incredible amount of time, thought, meeting with the rest of 3DMJ, evaluating things, playing with ideas to figure out how do I actually facilitate and mentor someone to be able to do some aspects of what I'm doing? And, and what does it look like for someone who doesn't have much, as much experience? What does it look like for someone who's a little more neurotic, et cetera? Um, when is this important? When isn't it? And the actual process is so individualized mm-hmm. that I couldn't, I couldn't create an ebook about this. Like th- this is that it'd be like, you know, it's something that I can speak to, you know, a dietitian have been clinical practice and they go, oh, I do some similar things. I can get some ideas from them because they have training, but it's, um, it's actual coaching. You know, we're, we're teaching someone skills and, and, and helping facilitate them have a different relationship with food, uh, in the context of physique sport. So you're a hundred percent right that, um, it's not something that is packageable and sellable in a, uh, you know, an X and O's kind of way that you could just write down, here's the protocol and sell it. But at the same time, I think it's also quite complex, highly individual and takes um, a lot of skill and forethought to actually impart. Um, and that's, that's the interesting thing, like, you know, with, you know, auto regulation or true coaching or like bottom up programming, like using RPE and like kind of the, some of the, the, the intuitive quote unquote approaches to training, they are, they require more thought on the side of the athlete. And it's something that they're typically not familiar with and it requires more coaching to get there and a, a much more of a facilitative approach. Kind of like, you know, when you sit down with a therapist and they ask you a whole bunch of questions to try to get you to think differently it's not like you can just go into a room and stare at a wall and have that happen. Even though you end up coming up with the, the, the answers to your own problems, the, the, the skill of the, the clinician to help you assess new perspectives and try new things and deliver those messages in ways that make sense to you is, man, it, it, it's not something that comes easily. And that's why it took a couple of years before some of the things that I was doing entered into my coaching practice. 
So I, I, I agree with you, but it's not to say that it's because the stuff is, 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 is too on the client or too simple, if that makes sense. No, totally. Yeah. I guess my point is just that like some coaches don't feel like it's within their ability to coach these things. And so that they put it down and they say, you shouldn't be doing that. What you should be doing is my $300 a week program. Well, I think right. So then, then, they're, then they're not relying on themselves. They, 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 they need to keep them coming to the, the guru. Uh-huh. Mm. Yeah, well said. No, I totally got you. Yeah. yeah, they keep the tools as if that they are the only ones that can hold them or yield them like they're yeah. Thor, you know? Yeah. Yes. We assess our client life cycle because we, Dean does comp prep only. I don't do a physique comp prep. Um, but we assess our, our life cycle with our clients and we don't want clients to stick around forever. If a client is hanging on for too long, like that's a failure on our behalf because mm. what we're trying to do is create permanent positive change and that doesn't happen when we create reliability. So we... Yeah, we, we have a look at why is this client sticking around for so long? What haven't they learned yet? What are they still relying on us for? And what can we do to change that? Yeah. Um, and coaches just need to learn that there's how many million people in Australia or the world if you work online. And if you don't have enough clients that you can, you know, make successful send off and start new ones and you're not very good at your job, maybe you should become a hairdresser. There's only 26 million people in Australia and, you know, it's, it's a limited resource. We don't want to tap it out. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Yeah, I think this is this whole, like Lee said, bottoms up approach and, uh, and and giving your clients the opportunity to understand. I like that you said bottoms up. You put a plural on that instead of bottom up. <laughs> I, did, I, did. I did actually. <laughs> we'll take it. Um, a bottoms up approach. That would be the code if you wanted to uh, get some sun in the in the middle, you know, because that's a new thing apparently. That's you right. Sun on the, the, the perennium tanning. Yeah. Have you heard of that? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Taint tanning. Yeah. What the fuck is that? Oh <laughs> yeah. my god. So bottoms up. But um yeah, yeah. it's it's this whole, you know, like you, you provide people the opportunity to understand the principles so they can apply their own protocols as opposed to saying this is the protocol, you don't follow that, you suck. Yes. Yeah, yeah. And the answer, uh people listening, if you ask your coach a question, if the answer is because I said so, we'll yeah. trust the plan. Yeah, not a great answer. Get a get a new coach, maybe. Yeah, if you're if you're discouraged from asking questions, if you are penalized subtly or explicitly when you ask a question, that's typically not ideal. No, no, not at all. Now, if I knew you weren't American and I went for the bottoms up, and then you just decided to pronounce that penalized, I would assume that you're just trying to make another sex joke. But <laughs> I imagine it's just because you you're penalized. There you go. <laughs> Much better. <laughs> now, Eric, we really appreciate your time, but know that you're a really really busy fella. So I might ask you, our little tagline for the podcast is how to be less shit. So Mm. I might ask you to try and summarize this episode with some less shit tips. Absolutely. So I think um, we talked about a fair bit, but if we were to focus in on the nutrition side of it and the actual practical application, um, my advice would be for anyone who is um, currently been tracking and has been using tracking in a way that they're rigidly holding on to it because they don't know how to do it. Otherwise some really useful tips just to try to step away is just to have one day where you don't track. Don't change your habits. Just don't put things on the scale. Literally it's the same exact day. Just don't open my fitness pal. Don't put things on the scale and just eat and eyeball it. And I think that little just gateway behavior, when you see that your weight doesn't change and nothing changes really kind of allows you just to get a little more freedom and you can make it a weekend. You can make it a taco Tuesdays. Um, the, um, where you eventually want to get to is that if you have taco Tuesday, and even if you overeat, even if you decide to have the chips and the bread, uh, <laughs> that the next day you find, you know, I'm just not quite as hungry and you eat a little bit less. Mm. Um, 
And that, that doesn't happen overnight, but I can tell you, and I think all three of us can tell you from experience that it is quite a freeing place to get to, and it will actually unlock uh, improved performance in the future to where you can make more decisions based on the changing reality of your body uh, and your environment over time. And um, it, it should start with baby steps because I think to someone, if, to, speaking to myself, to where I was in, say, 07, this would have all just bounced off the, the armor of my, of my denial at that time. And I think um, had someone said, you know what, just give, give one day a shot, or I want you to track macros, but also track a one to five rating of satiety and hunger, that would have been something I could have started and would have got, actually gone a much longer way than I might have expected. So those are kind of the baby steps I'd recommend for anyone who wants to try this. Try it in the off season when there is uh, you know, much less at stake, if you will. And, um, you know, don't feel like you have to do this, but if you are someone who feels trapped by, by tracking, those are probably the initial steps I would take. That would be some, some yeah. pretty easy advice to be, to be less shit. Yeah. That's Can awesome. I sprinkle in purchasing our ebook life after dieting? Yeah, sure. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Which honestly, uh, talks exactly about this. It's all about what to do after the diet's over when you're at a weight maintenance phase, how to do that without my fitness pal. Yeah, if we can even take the dieting success rate from 5% to 6% after five years, fuck, that'd be nice. Wouldn't it be, mm-hmm. wouldn't it be nice to get it higher even again, obviously, but it's yeah. such a shit stat. And uh, I think this is a super important uh, discussion for everybody to listen to either in a prep phase or a non-prep phase, anyone that's dieted, because it is this management long-term that people really do seem to struggle with the most. Mm, and just live in this perpetual state of trying to lose weight. Ooh. Yeah, that's just, a pretty awful place to be. Yeah, totally. Now... To wrap it up, we've got some good questions for you. But uh, first of all, we always ask our guests if they have anything oh, yes. that they think is uh, worth sharing to the people that are listening at home. So it could be like educational, a book, uh, uh, a podcast. I know of one. A movie. Um, yeah. I, I'm going to plug, plug a future thing that's coming out in I think only a week where my, myself and our 3DMJ registered dietitian, Steve Taylor, are releasing a course called Transitioning Away from Tracking which is super appropriate based on what we're talking about. So just keep an eye on the 3DMJ vault. Um, if you want to get notified by it, you can go to 3dmusclejourney.com. You can click on the vault and then you can enter your email to get uh, made sure you put on our, our email newsletter for that. And when it launches, it'll come out and we'll tell you about it. And uh, that's, a, that's, that's basically me and Steve talking through the science and then the practice. And it also comes with uh, a chapter from the Muscle and Strength Pyramids Nutrition book on behavior and lifestyle to try to really help people do exactly what we're talking about. So that's the main thing I'd want to plug. That is cool. That is, that cool. is really cool. Oh, now the fun stuff. Uh, we, have, we have two fast round questions and then we have a, an interesting last question. Okay. So it's your last 24 hours on earth. How do you spend it? Uh, I would definitely lift. That, that, that's, that's, that's one thing I would absolutely do. And I'd max out too, because you got to see where you're at. I want to have my, like, my Armageddon PR stats. So I'd probably do a super total, um, maybe even some strongman stuff. And then I would absolutely try to get my entire friend group and family group together, as many of them as I could. And since like, there's no reason to have a savings anymore, I'd offer to buy people tickets, get them out here. You know, we'd go somewhere nice, maybe all meet up in Hawaii, uh, or maybe someone a little more remote, remote. Cause if everyone knows it's the last day, that could be a pretty busy Hawaii. Would you tell everyone? I don't know if that would be sad. Oh, yeah. It'd just be full of crying, wouldn't it? Man, well, only if I needed to to get them to actually show up. If they were like, Eric, why on this random Thursday are you expecting me to leave work and go to go to Oahu? I'd be like, so here's the thing. You know, <laughs> I, I got good news and bad news. The good news is you get to take a day off work and there'll be no repercussions. The bad news is there'll be no anything. 
tomorrow. So, um, so yeah, the goal would be to, uh, to exhaust my savings to try to have as many of the people in my life I care about have a fantastic day with me and uh, after lifting. And I think those would be probably the two, two things I'd tick off. You are two for two podcast uh, I guess yesterday. Matt Stenzel is a powerlifter here in Australia. He went for a, a super total. He did. And, and you're the first two people we've asked that question. So yeah, it's interesting. Maybe, maybe we'll have a clean run. We change our questions every 10 episodes. So we'll see if the next mm. eight have the same answer. Whoa. I'm going to say they might because everyone loves lifting. That we we, do, speak we to. do have a particular group of people. There, there, there is a, a default type person who comes on the podcast. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, That's funny. All right, next question. Are there any weird habits, hobbies, or rituals that you engage in? Um, not that I'm going to share with you. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> let's see any weird habits, hobbies, or rituals. Uh, yeah. So one thing I do is, um, I have, I read a lot, but I partition what I read to different ways that my brain wants to be at different times. So I read continuing education, science, crap like that during my work day. But when I go to bed every night, I read sci-fi or fantasy and oh, it's wow. to completely disconnect from, from the, 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 the world that I, I, I live in all the time and it requires no commitment. I get to not think about some random Instagram comment that pissed me off or any of that. And I've read probably one to two sci-fi or fantasy books a month since I was like 13. So that's, that's exactly what yesterday's podcast guest said as well, that he does that for the same reason. Is this the same guy who wanted to do a super total? Yeah. 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 Okay, maybe you need to connect us because maybe this is my like my new best friend. This is pretty awesome. So. Yeah. Matt is an awesome dude. He would, I'm sure he would be stoked. Yeah, he's a legend. Uh, um, <laughs> that's hilarious. Yeah. So are the comments like you're not even jacked? Why should I listen to you, Eric? Mm. Are they the the comments that piss you off? <laughs> I've never gotten that comment before. People are always like, "Man, you look like Captain America. You're amazing. You're jacked." So oh, is that so? Okay. No, I've definitely got that comment before. I used to get when I was coaching Matt Ogus and we'd be on YouTube together. People were like, "Why are you bigger than your coach?" And I'm like. Does Bill Belichick have to be the best football player in the world? To, you know, like, come on. <laughs> That's so funny. You know, I might, I might poke you one day just to make you not go to sleep. Because I'm like, man, you look like Captain America before he went into the machine. Yeah, the, the, <laughs> you look like Steve Rogers, specifically. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I wasn't assuming that people said that to you because I don't think you're jacked. I know I've heard you say it before on Iron Culture. So. Absolutely, yeah. That's definitely happened. Um, yeah. Happens less, though. Uh, now, now that... The beauty of Instagram is now that if you take pictures during a contest prep, you forever look like that because I can just post pictures randomly of me shredded, you know. It's good. <laughs> whenever, whenever I want to educate people, I always attach it with a picture just so they know really how big my brain is. Because mm-hmm. it's got nothing to do with what comes out of my mouth. It's just solely like, you know, what I look like in a small pair of uh, undies. 100%. 100%. Uh, last question is uh, if you're familiar with the game, it's called a Would You Rather game. It's from a game called Shitty Choices. There's only, yes. there's only one rule or two rules. One, she can dump the card if she doesn't like the question on there. And two, if it's been asked before, she'll dump it. Yeah, but I only get one extra uh, picking. And that's not going to work. Oh, that's an A card. Don't worry. All right. Would you rather have a sexual dream about your ex, that's not that bad, or your cousin? <laughs> I think, I don't know if that's a good card. Am I going to dump that one? It depends how uh, particular. Everyone has a hot ex, and who doesn't want to have that dream? So, I mean, love you, Dean. What All if right. your ex is your cousin? <laughs> no, I'm from California. I'm not that from that part of the states. Go ahead. <laughs> Would you rather get a hickey that you can't hide, or give one? That's shit. That, that's the game. We right. got lucky. All right, we got lucky. There's some terrible cards in this game. All right, what would you rather? So I didn't. You, you, what was the, what was the second? What was the second question? Give a hickey You're... that the other person can't hide, and I'm just going to add in. Everyone knows it's from you. No, it's get a hickey that you can't hide, or give one. 
yeah, give one that the other person can't hide. Yeah. And everyone seeing the hickey knows that you gave it to them. It yeah. can't be your oh. wife. Just to sprinkle in some fun. It can't be my wife. So, so A, I have to cheat on my wife. <laughs> I don't know. Is giving hickeys cheating? <laughs> Maybe. Yeah, I mean, I'm... That, uh, Dean, this is your partner. Just ask that question. I, <laughs> I would just say I didn't give them a hickey, Liz. I gave them a mouth Chinese burn. Yes. <laughs> Which I, uh, I attacked them with my mouth. Um, man, that's... The whole it can't be your wife is a whole new curveball because now I'm trying to figure out, am I trying to hide the fact that I'm cheating? Well, I don't want to cheat. And if I did cheat, I'd want to come out with it. So this has actually created, created quite the conundrum. I think I would rather have the hickey that I can't hide because then the house of cards would finally topple. And I know that I'd be, if I was hiding the fact that I was cheating, um, that I would already be dying inside. So I would need that to come out. Look, I really feel like you're sprinkling in some extra drama here because no one's talking about cheating. Except Eric. So is this <laughs> But if it's not my wife <laughs> But it's just a hickey. Like, oh, so we're gonna go with the fact that the hickey is not cheating. You don't, well, I mean you don't have to be like having intercourse with them while you're giving them a hickey. Like it's just a hickey. But what if you want to right. the bottom So of I have not slept with anyone else, but I've I've been in some scenario where a hickey is either being given or, or received and yeah. it's not my wife. I would rather it be sexual. seen. I'd rather have it be seen on me. So right. I have to explain myself and and, and, and I can not feel, I can sleep at night and eventually just get in whatever fight with my wife needs to happen. So, yeah. I, I think I'd, I'd prefer to have the hickey too. Would you? I wouldn't give it. Who knows what's on that neck or wherever you're giving it. Yeah, I like. I probably I, overthought that a little bit, but I like yeah. how you're just like, I don't want to put my mouth on something where I don't know if it's clean or not. You have to ask all the questions prior. Like you have to come Before up with the situation, you know, like, yeah. is it, am I cheating? Is it my wife? Is it my sister? Like, is it my dog? You know, whatever it may be. I could just see myself giving or getting a hickey from someone else, not in a sexual environment, but just like because it's funny or something but like a that. But a hickey takes time. So like you definitely need to know that person, you know, you can't just yeah. be there just like leeching on them. I had whiplashes yeah. on my butt one day because I tried, I learned to do double unders and I kept whipping myself on the butt and then I had these whiplashes and then Dean saw them and never even asked me why I had whiplashes on my butt. I was like, dude, you can ask about this. Like, this looks really suspicious. I get that. It's called but trust. It's, <laughs> it's yeah, trust. There, there must be an explanation for this besides you have a partner with the cat of nine tails who I don't know about. Yeah. <laughs> and then the Fifty Shades of Grey book is on the side table. Look, this hickey is from this new CrossFit thing that I'm trying to learn. I see safety um, basketball. I've already figured it out. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, yep. yeah. All right, Eric. Well, it was fabulous chatting to you. And I hope that listeners, you got a lot from this episode and you go and check out the transitioning away from tracking yep. a 3DMJ. But if people want to find you, mate, where are the best websites and handles and all that jazz? Yeah. First, just thanks for having me on. It's a great discussion. I hope it's really helpful to your audience. And um, you can find me at 3dmusclejourney.com. That's the well, number three, the letter D, muscle journey. And then from there, you can find links to the Muscle and Strength Pyramids books monthly applications and strength support, my research review with Greg Knuckles, Mike Serdos, and Eric Trexler. Um, that's where our podcast is, the 3D Muscle Journey podcast. That's where our blog posts are. The only other content you'll find that isn't linkable through 3D Muscle Journey is Iron Culture Podcast, which is me and Omar being ridiculous, but discussing the science, culture, and history of, uh, of lifting. And you can find that on iTunes, Spotify, or YouTube. And then finally, if you want more kind of daily content, although I haven't posted today yet, but I will, at Helms3DMJ on Instagram. Beautiful. Yeah, that's a lot. People know where to find us, so we'll leave it there. Yeah. All right. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Thank you very much. Catch up.